Hi, I'm Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger and I'm the director of New Wine, New Wineskins. Welcome to New Wine Tastings, where every week we'll have an opportunity to engage people from diverse backgrounds, all in the attempt to build relational bridges through Jesus in contemporary culture. We are desirous of the opportunity to engage in deep and meaningful ways, and we're really thrilled and excited to have you with us. Hello, I'm Paul Lewis Metzger, the director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins. Thank you so much for joining us for New Wine Tastings, where we're seeking to build relational bridges through Jesus and contemporary culture. And when we think about the imagery in Luke chapter 5 about new wine poured into the new wineskins, we need to be like new wineskins as God's people following Jesus, that we are being stretched, not brittle like old wineskins, but flexible, stretched as Jesus is poured out into these skins. And as we're dealing today with a subject that's really challenging for everyone in one way or another, uh, conspiracy theories, we all need to be nimble. We all need to be stretchable. Uh, we need to be people who are pursuing grace and truth. And the title of this particular episode is Conspiracy Theories and Conspiring Against Incivility on the one hand, Insanity on the other hand. And it's my privilege to introduce to you my colleagues, Jeremy Chen, John Moorhead and Matt Farlow. And we're gonna be dialoguing over this subject. And so I'll be asking them questions. They'll be reflecting on these questions. And it's really how do we navigate conversations on subjects that are so often polarizing. And it's part of a series we're doing at New Wine Skins and New Wine Tastings. So again, conspiracy theories, conspiring against incivility and insanity. The first, questions I wanna, first question I wanna ask my colleagues is this. What is, to one person is a conspiracy theory, to another is gospel truth. It is worth noting here, as I set up the question, that sometimes conspiracy theories have been proven true, as in, for example, Watergate. Here, I also point out that the New Testament gospel of the kingdom message may itself be viewed as a conspiracy theory um, bound up with what one of our previous interviewees had argued, a political scientist, Professor Joseph Uzinski from the University of Miami in Florida reflecting on that subject. So as a result, I should have a little bit more empathy and humility as I engage those who I might think are peddling conspiracies. And again, just in setting up the question, while truth is not relative, no one gave me a God's eye point of view. In this light, I ask my colleagues, how important are empathy and humility in your estimation in discourse on conspiracy theories and following that, how do you seek to cultivate these affections and dispositions in your own engagement with people on conspiracy theories? So how important are empathy and humility in your estimation and discourse on conspiracy theories? And how do you seek to cultivate these affections yourselves and dispositions? Uh, John, Jeremy, Matt, Yeah, I mean, I think uh, empathy and humility are two key characteristics that obviously when it comes from a, a Christian perspective that this is how Jesus interacted with uh, not only those that he called to be disciples, um, but then the the outside, if you want to say, if there is a thing such as outside inside world when it comes to Jesus, it seems like everything would be inside in the sense of empathy and humility and compassion. Um, it just reminds me of where the biting words that Jesus says a lot of times where he says, I came to serve, 
you know, and not to be served. And so this aspect that uh, I think a lot of times, especially just as a human, I tend to want to be um, front and center and I want to be the one pushing the narrative. I want to be the one controlling it. And so when it comes to um, relating to others that I might not fully agree with, I think uh, continually reminding myself of how Jesus has dealt with me is very empathetic. He seems to step into my situations and want to and um, understand, you know, and so me trying to envelop or be enveloped within characteristics such as empathy and humility, it takes a lot of uh, introspective time on my part, at least to stop and say, okay, well, try to understand. I, it, uh, it just reminds me of one of our uh, famous uh, fr- favorite phrases of Harper Lee, you know, Atticus to his daughter, you have to be willing to step into the other person's skin to even attempt to see the world from their perspective. And that starts with the desire uh, to empathize, a desire to see the world from their perspective. And that comes from a, a, a position of humility that says, I'm no better. And so I think that's where I, I tend, those two characteristics are words that are thrown around a lot and yet to live them out are exceptionally difficult. Yeah, thank you, man. And I would just ask that you start practicing that with me a bit more <laughs> when you engage me in different conversations. It's a marathon, not a sprint, Paul. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. But yeah, fair enough. I, important points. And again, to seek to be understood first, no, to seek to understand first rather than to be understood. It's it's a hard pill for me to swallow, but it's what you're calling us to. Jeremy, your thoughts. Uh, there's so many ways to go off this question. Um, you know, uh, one thing I've been reflecting on a lot is, uh, you know, we, we tend to get categories in our brains, right? Words that we sort of think a lot about. And I think uh, sometimes in this conversation, people think about the word love and truth, right? It's even worded in your question. We kind of think of them as separate things or, um, or it might be said, you know, if I really want to love someone, I need to speak the truth to them, right? So you think of like the, the goal is love. So the route to it is truth. I don't know if that is the is the most um, I don't know if that's the most helpful way to frame it. Um, when we start thinking about those words, you know, uh, you know, the word emmet, right? What does that What does that mean? I think it's closer to I, I don't know if it's a, a black and white dis- the distinction between those two realities, right? Faithfulness could be used to describe that word, and that you could see it as encompassing both love and truth in a certain way. There's a certain um, there's, a, there's a reality in which I think when we, when we understand uh, the, the, the quest for, uh, maybe I can even use different words than love and truth, the quest for a greater being in touch with reality, um, both in terms of like when we're thinking about philosophically or like how do I understand what's going on, right? Uh, or uh, framing the bigger story of what's happening in this world politically, sociopolitically, whatever, right, religiously. Um, and when I, am I getting in closer touch with reality of that person in front of me, right? And so I don't have to frame those as separate things, right? Um, as I am seeking to be on this quest for uh, listening well, right? Discerning what is, what is true, what is beautiful, what is good, what is genuine, connect with what's out there in a, in a faithful posture, right? 
um, I have to listen well to that person in front of me. They may be saying something that doesn't seem to me to have a, uh, it, it may not map onto how I see, understand reality. It may be very crazy to me. I may listen and be like, whoa, alarm bells are going off my, in my head. But I think that's one, th those two words, I've been reflecting on that. And I, I think it has something to do with, I've, I've actually been exploring uh, the history of those words in English. Where does that come from? Why do we have such a stark difference between those words? And I just want to share a quick story. You know, um, here in Philadelphia, um, we have this interesting figure uh, called Philly Jesus. You could Google him. He's a, he's a guy that, I don't know if you've seen him online, but he, he dresses up as Jesus and he goes around and you see him all the time. And, but he doesn't really have a, like a very turn and burn style of sharing about Jesus, but he's wearing the white robe. But I've actually over time befriended him. Um, we bump into him sometimes out and about in Philadelphia. This last weekend, um, we were downtown, uh, Amy, uh, my wife and I, and we saw him and, you know, he actually practiced this with me. He, he, he I think is probably closer to having a view of eschatology um, that um, probably is, is different than mine when it comes to thinking about, uh, you know, end times and these kinds of things that are happening around us. And it seemed like he was open to these conspiracy ideas around the pandemic not being real, right? But uh, he asked me the question of how do I view, he started with this posture, how do I think about politics? How do I think about, where do I locate myself? You know, and he, and he kind of took down the temperature by saying, you know, you know, he, he made us all in common and he talked about Jesus first. And, but then he was very honest about how he views the pandemic and all these kind of things as not real. And so, I, you know, as I think that was an interesting way that he did it. Um, anyways, that was just a, that's just yeah, the beginning so, of the conversation, but yeah. Yeah. It's, so what I hear you saying, Jeremy, is that, you know, again, this particular leader or speaker on the public square um, in Philadelphia, where you're a a pastoral missional leader. Um, John's in Utah outside of Salt Lake uh, doing work in this domain of social psychology, religion, and like Matt's teacher, professor down in uh, California. So we're in different parts of the country. I'm here in, in Portland, Oregon. But here you are in a conversation with someone in the public square. Uh, I forget you said his name was? Um, well, he, he doesn't really go by his, his real name, but uh, he goes by Philly Jesus. Philly Jesus, but public, Philly yeah. Jesus you know, sought to find common ground with you, uh, articulated his difference of views, didn't, wasn't anonymous there, um, told you where he was coming from, but wanted to know how you think about things. He was inquiring, he was inquisitive. And that's really important for all of us in the midst of all of our differences. Do I really want to know what this person is? Do I really care? And he modeled that. John, your thoughts on this subject. And again, as Jeremy was saying, you know, grace and truth are not separate categories in scripture. You see them embodied in Jesus together perfectly, beautifully. He is gracious, truth, truthful grace. John. Yeah, I appreciate what Matt and Jeremy have shared so far. Uh, I certainly think uh, we need humility. I think it's a Christian virtue. I think it's one that we evangelicals need to draw upon and practice. However, I wonder how much we do that. I mean, Jeremy recognize the phrase, uh, speaking the truth in love. We evangelicals love that phrase. And unfortunately, in my experience, a lot of times we kind of use it as a, a hammer for others that we disagree with. Uh, I think many times that's why we're so apologetically oriented in terms of using apologetic arguments. Um, we're, we're always trying to hammer people over and persuade them. 
And I wonder sometimes if maybe we need to draw upon a little more humility. Maybe we engage so much in, in apologetics because we're really trying to reassure ourselves. And uh, we need to strike that balance between having humility on the one hand and confidence on the other. I think we can be sure of our, our convictions, uh, but we think we've got it figured out, but at the same time be open to uh, what the other has to present. Because uh, as you pointed out, there have been conspiracy theories uh, that have proven true and so we evangelicals can use conspiracy theories as a mirror, as an opportunity to do a little check on ourselves. Are we drawing upon the best of our tradition and our values and our virtues? And humility is certain, certainly one of those things. I think outside of evangelicalism, it's kind of surprised me to also see a, a segment progressives or liberals who champion uh, you know, being caring and empathetic for others. And yet we all have those outgroups that we tend to not practice what we preach as much. And for progressives, I've seen a lot of vitriol and, and a lack of empathy towards people who hold to conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. So this provides an opportunity for all of us to do a little self-check. Hope you're muted, Paul. Again, I think that was probably Matt doing that to me. So, but I, I think John, just as you're saying, you know, we all have confirmation bias. So we all have outgroups and we have in-groups. And the question is, you know, am I practicing what I preach? And if we had time, we'd get more into social psychology and things of that sort and how that plays out. But all I do know is if we operate by way of vitriol and demean someone, it's not going to somehow convince them of our position. It, it only tends to put the walls up more. And it, it's not about even having to prove myself right. And so I'm gonna be nice to the person. It's a matter of, am I open to a really robust, open-ended dialogue? I think that's what we're after, as exhausting as it might be. Let can me I go on to the next you? one. Can yeah, I mean, real quick just to add something, though? Yeah, very I, quickly. I think it's really important, though, uh, to, to play two sides to this. I think that people can be heard when we're saying we want to embody this posture of openness and, and curiosity um, as silencing when people are, are yelling, right? Um, and saying, I will, I'm, we cannot, you know, we cannot listen to those people. And unless they sort of engage in the perfectly, you know, civil way, it's, you know, and I, I'm sensitive to that, especially, I know you guys are too, when it comes to especially, you know, um, where people are in their mental health when it comes, you know, say racial injustice, right? Is there room for different kinds of engagement when it comes to sort of the, the um, loudspeaker and the, for the sort of, sitting around the table. And so I wanna be heard as, uh, my counsel is on the receiving end, let's become the kind of people that are, grow a thicker skin so that we can yeah, that's engage with people that are yelling at us and not uh, shut, shut off ability to engage when that happens, but also on the, on the giving end, learn to sort of, um, to be curious. That makes sense. No, I think that's a great, great point and we'll, you know, we have many miles to go before we sleep with this interview, but I'm glad you hit the pause button for us, Jeremy, because, you know, you can easily find the dominant culture, whatever the dominant culture is saying, people need to be more civil. And they're often talking about, let's just put it to race issues, like ethnic minority groups who might be protesting strongly or people advocating on matters pertaining to that. And I think we need to develop thicker skin and even just how we engage in conflict some people might be more visceral, more um, agitated in their language 
Um, and that doesn't mean that they're hostile either. And I think we do need to develop thicker skin. And especially on matters related to equity and justice, if people have been marginalized, we can use civility in the dominant culture as a weapon to try and silence people. And I think, you know, we need to be careful that we're not just about equality, but we're about equity. And that might mean I need to make sure I'm the civil one far more so uh, because I have a bigger log to take out of my eye in the first place. So I think that's a very, very important point. I think I'm speaking to what you're saying. I, I, I certainly resonate with what you're saying. Um, the second question, um, how do you and I seek to balance rightful concern for the pursuit of truth and veracity of one's claims on the one hand and embody empathy and humility on the other hand, again, I take on board Jeremy's point because in the biblical world, I don't think there's like truth on the one hand, grace on the other. Our English language tends to set them up as almost like polar opposites, but they they bleed and they're one because it's ultimately God in Christ. Um, so how do we do that though? How do we pursue truth empathically? Humility being a driving force. And also what are the dangers if we don't strike a rightful balance. And so we're in the English language, we have no choice but to use it in some ways still, but these are messier than I'm probably making it out to be. How do we do that? How do we engage that? How about John, Jeremy, Matt? Uh, this obviously is related to the, the first question we tackled there, but uh, again, my concern is that we find balance in how we go about it. I think it's so easy to to come down on the side of either proclaiming truth and uh, beating people over the head with it. In fact, or the other one is, uh, you know, just uh, trying to so come down on the side of uh, civility and respect that we don't address the key issues where we disagree. So I think we've got to strike that balance there. Um, and I've been struck uh, as I look at Facebook conversations and Facebook probably isn't the best venue for uh, these kinds of conversations over divisive issues like conspiracy theories, but it surprised me to see even people who do what we do, people in mission, uh, people involved in interreligious dialogue, evangelicals who are usually more empathetic as they engage uh, other people. When it comes to conspiracy theories, it's like the gloves come off. One gentleman took exception to some of my comments and my counsel, and he said, well, we've got to call it out. You know, this stuff is dangerous. It has dangerous ramifications. He said, like anti-vaxxing conspiracies. So it has to be called out. And my response was, it depends upon the context. Uh, I think at times we do have to say, look, I think uh, conspiracy theory X has some dangerous ramifications and we need to be careful. But at other times, if we're dealing with somebody who happens to hold on to a particular conspiracy theory, if we go at them uh, with the truth with a capital T, and hammer at it, again, we're gonna cause them to double down on their convictions. So I think a lot of the things that you and I do in missions and dialogue and multi-faith engagement transfer over to how we engage people dealing with uh, conspiracy theories. Well, yeah, and I think related to that, John, you know, there's a double whammy going on in our society right now in these discussions and social media, like, you know, so-and-so is a conspiracy theorist and they're a cult leader or a cult group member. It's like oh, why don't we just add a third strike so that people are out? <laughs> you know, it's like, and those are heavy terms. It's weighty. And it's like when people use Hitler for everything and there's that, that theory on how people engage in conflict. And if you just say, well, they're a Hitlerite, boom, right? So it just, 
it's it be, even if people don't mean it, it becomes a weapon. I think we had to be very guarded, like with multi-faith. You and I are very wary about using the language of cult uh, for a variety of reasons. Right? I mean, this is not a discussion on that today. Same thing with conspiracy theorists, because Professor Yuzinski showed us that people can be conspiracy theorists who are very same people. I mean, Watergate, right? Bob Woodward, right? Carl Bernstein. I mean, they were dealing with a conspiracy theory and they showed it to be true. So we had to be on guard on this. And Yuzinski said, look, right and left, left and right. You can both be, but we usually use the language to shut people down or say they're crazies. And um, we're all a bit crazy. So uh, Jeremy and then Matt. Yeah, that's, that's a good word, especially that last bit, we're all a bit crazy. I think if we start with that um, and assume that the person I'm engaging with has something I need to mm -hmm. learn. I think that I've been, a, I'm assuming that, um, and it really, it really takes away the edge. Um, and, and, you know, I think our brains naturally do this. We're, our brains naturally create scenario plans, right? You know, we're, our brains naturally forecast, where is it headed? If you take this idea, what's the natural conclusion, right? So for example, I know that um, on this, on this uh, forum, you've been th thinking a lot about QAnon, but a lot of the outlets immediately, it's the easy thing to say, that, well, this automatically goes towards the pizza gate leads to terrorist activity, right? And that may have been an instance, it's a, it's a talking point, but, um, you know, I think, I think uh, when, you, when, you, when you do the worst possible outcome and you sort of describe it in that way, it already draws a very hard line that will push people into an antagonism. And so, you know, the way I look at, like to think about it is, uh, I'd, I'd rather, rather than going towards the extreme scenarios, try to navigate and explore in the middle with people, right? And if we explore in the middle, it could be that we together see, and we want to entertain the question, could it be an extreme scenario, you know? I think there is very difficult for people to explore an extreme, whether what you're viewing, your view of reality is an extreme scenario when it's, um, when it's stated as such, rather than entertained, right? And, you know, another, another thought I have, I mean, this is something that I've been trying to do as a, a particular discipline is, when I, uh, when I see something that is a perspective that I actually find dangerous, you know, um, I actually have been telling myself that I want to actually dig into it with an empathetic lens to learn about it. So I'll be very transparent here. You know, um, I am not, uh, eschatologically, I, I don't currently hold views of uh, end times that I used to. I used to be what people call a... Um, you know, pre, was it pre-millennial dispensationalist, right? Which with, you know, popular books would be like Left Behind series, um, Hal Lindsey back in uh, 1970, which by the way, this is the 50th anniversary of that book. Um, <laughs> oh, you're talking about the late great planet Earth, right? Yes, the late great yeah, planet Earth. Left Behind so, series with Tim LaHaye that came much later. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That came later. Um, but I've been reading books um, in the similar vein. Um, I'm just going to name some authors, David Jeremiah, uh, John Hagee, Hal Lindsey, Jonathan Kahn. Um, and uh, to be honest, I have a visceral reaction that doesn't like that stuff. Um, I know that a lot of my peers, friends here in Philadelphia as well, probably, um, you know, I've had friends recommend that stuff to me. And 
I've been trying to, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't like to argue. So I realize, so I just kind of avoid those kind of conversations. But I've decided I have to stop avoiding and I have to kind of read this stuff empathetically. And, and, and you know, I've, I've read, as I've read some of this stuff, I realized like, there's a lot of good stuff here, you know? Now at the end of the day, after, it's a lot of work after, after reading through it and saying, okay, now how do I peel apart the stuff that's really good in it? And the stuff that I think that in my view kind of could lead to um, sort of ways of piecing together, you know, things that can lend towards a little bit more um, credibility towards conspiracy theories that I don't think are helpful. You know, I, I realize that it's a lot of work to do that. Um, very few people want to do that work. And so in a conversation, what ends up happening is you have already arrived at that place where it's not plausible to you, but you see someone that it is plausible to, and then you kind of just mock it, right? And, and you don't want to do the hard work of like, yeah, actually, if I really wanted to convince someone, I'd have to spend a lot of time talking to them, getting to know them, and show them that there's a lot of truth to, it's, it's pretty plausible, the picture that they painted in their mind. But um, it, it's a lot of work to show someone that the, their perspective might be dangerous, you know? And uh, yeah, I don't know if that's helpful, but. Oh, it's very helpful. And I think, I think any one of us with our views, our views can end up being dangerous, right? I think that's what you had said before you made a distinction between basically the potential and the actual. We tend to think everything is actually dangerous. Well, QAnon, you know, not everything in QAnon is Pizzagate, right? It's one way in which it can manifest itself. I mean, Christianity with Jesus dying on a cross, if we're not careful, it can get into parental abuse. And again, I don't think that's inherent to shame, but play it out and it can be taken that way. You know, and I, people might think, well, as a Christian, it's like, what? You know, someone in ours, what? How? I wouldn't do that. Well, you know, God put his son on the cross. God beat the crap out of us. I mean, you know, this is how some have argued. That that's what happens. I don't see it that way, but I could see how someone could use it that way. And we might have abusive tendencies at times that arise with how we project on description. I, that's in part what I take from you. Christians do this with Muslims all the time. Islam is terrorist, which I don't think at all that's the case. And John and I have talked a lot about this, reflected on this, how often we have amnesia for in our own tradition on how we engage our own scriptures with violence. But we see it with Islam, but we don't see it in our own, right, John? So I think these are the types of issues what Jeremy's raising is key. And this is not coming for Jeremy and John and Matt, you know, in some esoteric, you know, just Zoom chat discussion. As Jeremy was articulating, this is something that goes on a lot with him with his friends, not just people out there, but his friends who he's wrestling, but they're his friends. So he's, he's willing to invest the time. I know for Matt, this is something you're dealing with as well. And I think, John, you've already shared a little bit about this, correct, this question. But Matt, you know, you're you find this, I'm not going to go into specifics, but you find this in some of the conversations you have with people who are conspiracy theorists. And I'm sure it's frustrating with for you at times, but you have to hit the pause button and say, okay, how do I engage this? Any thoughts for you on this question? Yeah, you know, we were, I don't remember when we were watching it, but uh, there's this scene in uh, this uh, sitcom called Parks and Rec where uh, she's the director of the recreation, you know, in any town, uh, anyone knows where, you know, the recreation of the, the the community has a lot of opinions coming in. And so she's uh, 
her task is to go and sit at their monthly meeting and listening to people and they just show these scenes where they're just yelling at her yelling at her and she says you know i just learned when they're yelling it's they're caring loudly you know and uh so i think a lot of evangelicals need to understand this especially me you know if we're getting in these situations i when i used to coach wrestling um i would always tell my wrestlers you know getting a penalty point or two i shows me that you're passionate the third penalty point just starts to get into the ridiculous because now we're starting to do things that are just unintelligent. And so for me to have Christians fired up or even folks that are uh, from another viewpoint fired up shows a little bit of passion. The question is, is what do you do the second and third level of that in your response to the other? Does it get into the point where we start to detract from the dialogue or the communication? And I find it interesting that, um, you know, even Facebook understands this need for compassion and care with the addition of the care button. You know, people got tired of, well, I don't really like it and I'm not really loving it, but I really, I have compassion towards this, you know, so I need something. So they put the care uh, button on there. Um, and this idea of empathy, you know, uh, in your book um, on the Beatitudes, not platitudes, Paul, you get into the uh, Beatitudes and this idea of meekness, you know, and that's a hard concept, I think. It's no wonder that uh, in the passage you start with with Luke 5 and then the new wineskins and the stretching, then in Luke's, it goes right into Luke 6, which is the entrance in the Beatitudes. And this idea of being stretched because the only way for someone to engage another, to receive them. I like to tell my students uh, when I'm teaching theology because I'm at a Christian university and so they be they tend, you know, we, if you grow up in the church and you don't have a lot of outside influences, we tend to get very myopic, very narrow. And I try to remind them that um, their theology uh, in someone else's mind is just as crazy as what you think their theology is, you know, so your views are just as, so in order to embrace the other, we have to be willing to sort of do that awkward dance with them, you know, um, uh, and it's, college students that I'm teaching. So I remind them junior high, high school, the first time you spoke to the person that you kind of liked, you had a crush on, you just stumble over your words. But even when you get embarrassed, you might run away. You still come back to it because it's something that you want to pursue. So we need to start seeing these other uh, viewpoints from people who we might not understand as something that not the viewpoint itself, but the person that we want to come into contact with. They're a person that I need to understand. And so the more that I repel from their thoughts, the more I need to challenge myself, though, to press into their personhood. Um, because that's what Jesus did with me. You know, if we take Paul's, the Apostle Paul's words uh, as they are, for the wages of sin are death, and we were all enemies of the cross, you know, and yet even am amidst that truth, Christ had enough empathy, enough humility to put himself in my place and wrap me up in his love. You know, I challenge my students too when we start to get in the categorization. Jeremy was talking about categorizing. We like to categorize. I challenge them if the way we define terrorism is as such that going in and with these radical views and then, you know, for a lack of better words, you know, blowing up the, the town, the situation, like a lot of uh, what we uh, deem as being terrorist acts. We have to be careful because like you were saying, Paul, like some of the things that we define as terrorists could be those first century uh, Christian activists going into these co communities. I mean, think about it. Jesus basically jumps into the, uh, the culture just to, to, to dismantle what they had going 
to blow it up. And so before we start categorizing like, oh, this is terrorism, this is terrorism, step back and go, well, wait a minute. The activities that we define as terrorism could easily be then projected or taken in and put onto the paradigm that's called Christianity, like you were saying, uh, Paul. So I think not being dogmatic, which starts with me first, I have to step back and go, why? what is it that really irks me about this thought, this uh, uh, this philosophy? Why is it that it, it, it sets some, some, something off within me? And before I speak, learning how to, okay, assess, I'm not upset with this person. And I think that's the hardest thing for any one of us is to separate ourselves from our thoughts. When they're critiquing, attacking my thoughts, they're not attacking me as a person. Sometimes they might be. I mean, obviously in abusive situations, we have to be able to discern, but let's not go right straight away with that uh, uh, confrontational aggressive, they're automatically attacking me. Step back and go, no, 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 what am I hearing? What is it that uh, this, this person is coming at me with these thoughts? And I think that only happens when we step into the truths of empathy, humility, and seeking to understand the person, you know, um, and listening has to be priority, you know, listening has, so we receive the person as they are, not as we've projected them to be. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's been a, a child or, or a parent, um, you know, if one operates by engaging their children, simply by way of what they want them to be, it's gonna be a pretty bad relationship in my estimation. Uh, if my parents had treated me like that, um, I would have been even more messed up than I was and am. Uh, but my parents sought to engage me where I was. They certainly had longings and hopes for me, but as messed up as I was when I was younger, and John, you're gonna say, well, you still are, Paul, but I, my parents, when they're alive, they, they always treated me where I was and loved me where I was, even though they had hopes and longings for me. So I appreciate your point and your personalist point, Matt, that you say, you know, basically what you're saying, I hear you saying is positions matter and people do inhabit positions, but still people are more than their positions and are deeper than their positions. And I think even with um, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg passing away and uh, you know her colleague on the court who passed away um, years earlier, uh, the uh, conservative justice, I'm blanking, but they had a very profound relationship. Yeah. Uh, Scal uh, what's that? Justice Scalia. Scalia. and. Someone asked him when, you know, he had gotten roses for Ginsburg, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg, you know, two dozen roses. He said, yeah, but those roses aren't going to impact your, you know, your convincing of, her, of your conservative position. He said, there are some things in life that are more important than political positions. And it's not that those aren't important. They are important. But people are still what we're ultimately pursuing, aren't we, in those relationships in the midst of the positions. And I think we often lose that. And the only other point I would add to that is as people seeking to live in view of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are persons, we're ultimately persons, we're not things. As Dr. King said, we need to move from a culture of things to persons. And he always engaged people, even his enemies, by way of seeing them as persons and seeking to win them over, not over against them, but to the beloved community. Radical, radical. And we need that more than ever. Uh, if we have time, we'll come back to like points where maybe you, we, I have messed up and that can be something you renew, but we have limited time. I want to say, you know, how do you try to approach people
who challenge what might be considered our own conspiracy theories. How do you engage people when it, the shoe's on the other foot? And how do we respond? How do we respond? Uh, Jeremy, John, uh, Matt, thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, um, I, I think we, I, I thought recently about how, um, you know, life stage might, might fit into these kind of things. You know, when you're young, you're like, you know, if you came from a religious tradition, you want to kind of like question it all and move on, you know, and then you're, say you're in your 20s to 30s and that's that stage and then your 40s, 50s, like psychologically life stage, how that fits into how you feel and how you inhabit your beliefs, right? Um, and so I think, you know, it, it also relates to attitude because people talk about how when you get to a certain stage, uh, people become just like naturally become crotchety, you know, <laughs> Uh, um, uh, unless there's some some impulse in them that they're working against that, you know, I think there can be a similar similarity in terms of how we hold views. I mean, um, I, I hope that we, I would adopt, and I know that this isn't a matter of course, but uh, this is going to be debated within um, um, how people uh, understand truth. But for me, as I understand it, truth stands above and outside of me. Um, and my understanding, and so I should be open to being proven wrong, radically so. Um, so, so if someone was even to ask the question of like, you know, you say conspiracy theory, so is, is the resurrection a conspiracy theory and things like that, you know, whatever you would see as the foundation of, for me, my worldview, my, my faith, I think it would, that would be one of the key ones, you know. Um, so, so people ask Christians, you know, are you open to being proven wrong? What if there was a, what if the body of Christ was found, you know, those kind of things. And I've heard some, some pretty well-known Christian thinkers say, well, you know, like they'll kind of try to evade that question, but I, I don't know. For me, it's like, I, I should be able to, I'm comfortable saying yes. If I'm, if it's proven wrong, then I am no longer a Christian. I mean, uh, that's first Corinthians 15. Exactly. Paul right. allows for it. Right. But I'll say it this way. I'll say it this way. Uh, I could also say Jesus himself is guiding me outside of my current understanding, whatever, right? Um, Jesus, the, the way, the truth, the life. The, so um, if we don't hold this kind of sense of, yeah, an open-handedness to receive truth from outside of myself. But I understand that that's controversial. I think I would strongly argue for that because I think without that kind of posture, you sort of, that, that openness to the system you have to have an emergence, a living dynamism, you know, which I would view as the spirit of Christ, which constantly grows us. I think that, you know, the Eastern Orthodox tradition talks about this, like, we're going to continue to get to know God forever, right? They call that theosis, but we're going to continue to grow forever. We're, our, you know, you know, math, right? It's like that, that, uh, that asymptote. We're going to continue to get closer and closer to the infinity of God forever. So if that's true, like, unless you adopt that posture, I think that intrinsically you kind of, close down your, your ability to learn, which I think is what creates any kind of fundamentalism, which, whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just to that, to that point, Jeremy, if we expect others, whether it's atheists, Muslims, you know, Buddhists, whoever, um, to be open to their positions not being spot on, how can we go a different route? I mean, that's just not, that's not fair. That's not equitable. <laughs> that's not, that's not Christian. 
Uh, so I, I completely agree with you on that matter of an openness. I think if people challenge us on our conspiracy, it's like, man, let's not bring it as a fight, but like, yeah, let's explore. Let's explore. I'm open to that. As hard as it is, I need to be open. Yeah. Um, John and Matt, Matt and John, whoever wants to go first. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, it's funny that you asked the question or Jeremy, you were talking about, uh, you know, being willing to be proven wrong. If I'm honest and in, you know, whatever preaching and teaching, I'll, I'll tell people the flesh side of me, to be honest, the human side of me kind of hopes sometimes that Christianity would be proven wrong um, because of, of the American culture that I've been raised in uh, allows for me to seek out all these things for myself and to elevate, you know, and as long as I give a little bit here and a little bit here, then I look like a good person, then I can have all of these things that I think make me feel good. So in some sense, you know, it wouldn't, my human fleshly, you know, where I want me, 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 sometimes just hopes that the Christian uh, truth would be marked as being finally proven false because you know my humanness understands that i want what i want you know however the more i spend time with jesus and i spend time with folks who love jesus and who understand jesus more than me and and i allow for the spirit to really transform me you know to stretch me uh, so i put myself in situations where it's uncomfortable with thoughts that i don't agree with i read books uh, from a from an eschatological standpoint that I just, I don't understand because it just seems too far fetched. You know, I uh, listen to conversations and dialogues, you know, I watch some speeches and some teachings of folks that I don't understand their, their premise, but I need to, because I need to be stretched from my standpoint, because when I say that this guy was born of a woman who had no sex, that in and of itself is absolute ludicrous, you know? And then when I say his last dying words were, oh, he asked for forgiveness to, for the father to have mercy on these people that just beat the crap out of him, that doesn't compute for me. So everything in my brain wants it to be a conspiracy. It wants it to be untruth. And yet I cling to it because I know. And so like Augustine said, you know, Jeremy, you were hinting at it. All truth is God's truth. So I have to be willing to step away and go, holy cow, the atheist, the, you know, even the, the hardcore truth of someone who is in jail for murder, for rape, they still have a truth that I can glean from because they are a person who is deemed lovable by the one who died for the sake of my sins. You know, he, he eradicated my sins so that what? Not that I could be pious and above and holier than thou, but so that I could step down into the, 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 wherever it might be, the trenches, but also into the rich mansions, you know, uh, and actually receive the other. And so I think that that's something that we have to be mindful of that. My perspective is just like we've been talking is just as crazy, you know, and until I'm willing to step back and go, oh, wait, they bleed. They cry, they laugh, they, they are just like me. They are human um, and they want someone to appreciate and acknowledge them just as much as I do. And so, so often I think when we, we see someone with an opposing view and they're aggressive, it might it be because we have been so demeaning and uh, uh, discounting of them that they're only reacting and projecting onto me what the majority group has always done. And so I have to be mindful and say, oh, well, that's understandable. Uh, and so to be softer 
And because of my own viewpoint, my own perspective, I have to be willing to say, no, they, that is just as crazy for me to, to say, oh, I need to go do this, to love the poor, to, you know, this is pure religion, to take care of those that are uh, uh, displaced. And to the, even sometimes to the uncomfortable truth of me, I have to step beyond that, you know, and be stretched. And so I think allowing for that disjointing within others before, you know, we tell my uh, I have kids that are uh, college age. And so I, we tell them all the time, Hey, look, when you feel your blood and everything boiling, that's not the best time to react. Okay. And you want to get in conversations where people are passionate to a degree that's opposing to you because then it will stretch us, you know, because they're just as passionate from your point of view, from their point of view as, as you are from your point of view. And so it, it allows for our truth then to be solidified. It's, I know it seems so cliche when we keep taking Bible verses to support our views, but the Bible has this truth for us to incarnate, inhabit. And it even tells us throughout the Bible that when we are allowed to allow our thoughts and our beliefs to be confronted, they sharpen. That which is untrue will, will be uh, uh, whittled away, and that which is truth will finally continue to reveal itself to me so that I understand truth. That, though, allows for me to be allows for my thoughts to be put into the fire though and refined. And that happens when I interact with someone thoughts that are not mine, you know? Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Um, a lot of, a lot of wisdom there. And so again, when people challenges us with our conspiracy theories, how do we respond? John, uh, feel free to respond to that question. How do you respond to people who engage you claiming that your views are conspiracies? But since we only have about uh, 10 minutes, before we all turn into pumpkins. Um, I would ask John for you to start out by answering the question, you know, as we are going deeper into this political season, election cycle, and now with Supreme Court justice opening, I mean, it just, it intensifies it both for the right and left, left and right. Um, I would also ask that you, John, start off by answering this question, then Jeremy and Matt as well engage. Um, you know, what closing advice would you give regarding the need for civility and sanity, rationality, uh, not civility over against agitation and you know pursuit of justice and equity. It's not one or the other, but also with that sanity, rationality. I mean, Jeremy you made a good point earlier about you know let's not use civility as a weapon against others. Uh, in the midst of it, still I want to ask: How do we in this election season develop this emphasis on civility? with equity, I should add here, and sanity. John, and then Jeremy and Matt. Yeah, I'll combine uh, both of those questions. I think one of the biggest challenges I face in this regard, uh, when people are bringing in their strong disagreements with me, and I, by way of response to them, is the challenge of frustration. Um, I, I get frustrated in the interaction that we don't seem to be hearing each other. I get frustrated that they don't see my position as being the correct one. I mean, I'll be honest, and I'm sure they feel the same thing. And it's helpful uh, to, to see that in others. Recently, I was reminded of the need to, to check that in myself and be cautious. You've complimented me before, Paul, on Facebook and my interactions with people. And what you see on Facebook doesn't mean that I started there before I wrote the response. I mean, I get angry, I get frustrated, and I have to pause. I think that social media exacerbates. We, we get instantaneous responses and positions, and then we often get into instantaneous responses. 
And we as human beings, are, our cognitive processes are a combination of the emotional and the rational. And those two work together. And many times the emotion is leading the charge. And so we respond out of whether it's fear, anger, frustration, or what have you. So remembering where people are coming from. And I was reminded of this recently in Facebook last week. A woman was responding to the concerns that she has. That she has no patience for people who hold to conspiracy theories. And I gently tried to offer some suggestions as to why that people don't hold their prejudices just because they're trying to be evil, but rather it's life experience that they've gone through. And there are a variety of factors. So maybe there's reason for pause and for backing up and understanding. And her response was great. She says, maybe so, but I, I'm just too frustrated right now to go there. So she wasn't dismissing the council. She was just saying, I can't go there right now. And I think that's a legitimate that's, yeah, place that's, to be. That's refreshing, actually, as yeah. a response, right? If we could just say, yeah, maybe so, but man, right. it's too visceral for me. I mean, that's just honest. And we all struggle yeah. in that way. So, yeah, and we're finding, finding it elevated. So Jeremy and then Matt, we only have about six minutes left. Yeah, I'll share a quick story. Uh, um, we're uh, in North Philadelphia. We're trying to start a uh, youth center uh, in, out of a space. And... Um, you know, during a pandemic, it's kind of hard. But one way that we've been engaging is, you know, with masks on going around the neighborhood and doing surveys, you know, like literally door to door talking to people, hey, we're gonna we want to start a youth center here. What do you think about that? How would your kids want to in get involved? And so, you know, we had a couple different, you know, we have different questions for the youth. You know, how do how do you think adults view you and you know, different questions for the adults. And, um, you know, that's fun. But you know, during the process, uh, we bumped into a uh, one a white lady. Uh, it's a neighborhood that's mostly uh, black and different varieties of Latino, uh, Hispanic, um, and uh, it was interesting. I mean, she she talked about being alienated from her neighbors um, or just, and she's the one that volunteered. You know, probably it's because I'm a Trump supporter. And then she kind of went into this direction of trying to convince us about a lot of these things and. And it was me with uh, a white guy and a black guy who, who and, uh, and a um, black or mix, black and white mix woman that are part of this team. And we were doing these surveys and uh, it was really interesting. You know, we ended up praying with this woman, but she wanted to talk for about an hour. You know, at least it felt like that. I didn't actually count the number, amount of time, you know, sharing. It really felt like she was, at least from where I stand, um, her gauge on the facts of, of reality when it comes to um, political realities, or it just didn't seem that informed, right? Um, but um, it, it, this is connected to what you're saying, John, because um, I knew that my friend, who's her neighbor, is black, that he wouldn't be able to stick around <laughs> to hear certain things. So, you know, he, and, and, and that's understandable. And uh, for me, I think because of, you know, I'm not, involved in the racial binary and those kind of things in the same way. I was able to stick around and, you know, we're able to pray with her, hug her and invite further conversation. Um, but, you know, I, I share that story and, and you know, I'm, we're planning on continuing, I'm planning on continuing to engage her, you know, but I share that story because uh, what that's doing is that that's uh, situating her as a person, right? An embodied, uh, it, it sounds so simple, right? Uh, you know, that proximity, long-term engagement, um, situating people's concerns in a way that's empathetically understands why they might, you know, she's a one white woman in like a mostly, she's been there since before it became not white, 
you know? Um, and sort of being able to sort of grasp their narrative, their story, right? And why it may be understandable, if not to justify their beliefs. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, many of you know that uh, recently a documentary came out on Netflix called uh, The Social Dilemma. And this is kind of hitting on a lot of what you guys are talking about too, when it comes to uh, social media um, and uh, just how it enables sort of a, a disembodied way of, uh, of relating to each other, but also information that can kind of get us into these weird silos that um, can no longer see reality in any way near each other. So, I, you know, I, I, I'm trying to emphasize these themes of embodiment, patience, connecting with each other, situating each other's stories in a way that sort of um, humanizes them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when we're under stress, we tend to speed up rather than slow down. And I think in our current political moment, we're going to be tending to speed up on social media and elsewhere. And what I hear you saying is let's slow it down. Keep the urgency, make haste slowly, as someone might say, but embody, engage, be patient. Matt, two minutes, because I'm speeding up here. We got to close this episode. Okay, two minutes, Matt. No, I think it's a good idea. This idea of just pausing. Um, and it reminds me of, you know, during the World War, First World War, there was a Lutheran pastor, Martin, I think, Niemöller. Um, but he's attributed with the quotation that says, you know, they came for the socialist and I didn't speak because I wasn't a socialist. They came uh, for the unionist. I didn't speak because I wasn't a unionist. They came for the Jews and I didn't speak. They came for me and there was no one left to speak up, you know, and uh, this was during the World War One. And I think this uh, World War Two, I think. Anyway. Uh, uh, yeah, pause. Okay, so it was World War II. I thought um, so. Um, and so this is this idea that even though there might be disagreements, the fact is, is that if we don't see one another as uh, persons uh, in need of the love and in need of being um, seen, you know, um, when one of the things that I've learned from my uh, roles is, is being a pastor as well as a professor is this just intrinsic need within each one of us uh, to be seen. To be understood, you know. Um, so while the saying is faith seeking understanding, which is absolutely true, we're understanding. Part of that understanding, though, is is faith seeking the individual. You know, who am I? Jesus asked, "Who am I?" And our response to him is a direct response as to who do I say I am? The me of me, you know. Um, and so I think stepping back from ourselves and going, there's still a person. There's hurt. There's need, there's a, a jubilation and, and pain and suffering. And the one who came to, to swallow and to eat my suffering, Jesus, asked me to do the same for the sake of the other. Whether I understand them fully or not, what I should understand is that they are created in the image of this God who loves me beyond anything that I could see. So I have to out love my own misunderstandings or my own hate towards the other. And I can only do that when I'm... Uh, focused on the one who is love. And so I think that's just something as Christians need to be rem reminded of constantly. We do that communally. You can encourage me when I need it, just as when I'm down, just as much as I can encourage you down and the, and, you know, and the like. Thank you, Matt. And that's a good closing reflection about the centrality of Jesus, because this is hard for us. As John said earlier, it ain't easy. You know, it ain't easy. 
And I think for all of us, those watching, those listening, for ourselves, it ain't easy. It's difficult. Um, and we need to take seriously Jesus' own engagement of us. You know, not that we first loved, but God first loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, not just those people over there. And then hopefully we'll have a little bit more empathy with pursuit of equity and pursuit of truth. So thank you, Matt, Jeremy, and John. And thanks for those who are watching uh, this episode of New Wine Tastings as we deal with the subject of conspiracy theories conspiring against incivility and insanity. God bless you all. Thank you.